Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a urologist goes over the diagnosis and treatment of kidney stones. Once the stones form, there's not much that can be done except to remove them surgically or to pass them on your own. To prevent the formation of the stones in the first place, we have to really focus on diet, exercise, and in some cases, medication. A vascular surgeon and wound care expert tells about limb preservation for people with arterial diseases. When we see the patients, we try to assess what the etiology or cause of the wound is. And a community leader explains the role of the community trauma response team. I call trauma the invisible demon. That's something you can't see, you don't know what people carry, you don't know what they deal with. So we wanted to put a process in place to kind of, you know, address that as much as we could. All that along with a selection from The Healing Muse after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, a vascular surgeon and wound care expert discusses limb preservation for people with arterial diseases. Then, we'll hear about the community trauma response team in Syracuse. But first, a urologist talks about the diagnosis and treatment of kidney stones. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The incidence of kidney stones is said to be increasing worldwide, with around 15% of the population at risk for stone formation. With me in the HealthLink on Air studio to discuss what to do about kidney stones is Dr. Scott Weiner, an assistant professor of urology and the director of the kidney stone program in the Department of Urology at Upstate. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Weiner. Thank you for having me, Amber. It's a pleasure to be here. So what are kidney stones? What are they made of? So most kidney stones are made of uh, calcium-based minerals. Many of that is calcium oxalate. Some are calcium phosphate. And there are a variety of other more rare types of kidney stones, such as uric acid, cysteine, and uh, other more rare types than that. What's the medical term? There are a variety of terms that we use. Oh, okay. Sometimes we'll call them nephrolithiasis or urolithiasis. Sometimes we will describe that in terms of what organ the stone is in. So if it's in the kidney, we may refer to it as nephrolithiasis. If it's in the ureter, it may be ureterolithiasis. Well, I was going to ask, the stones can form anywhere along the urinary tract? Typically, we think that stones in the kidney are forming, uh, for the most part, on a small plaque called Randall's plaque. Think of the plaque that forms on your teeth when you don't brush often enough. It's the same material. This is calcium phosphate. Calcium phosphate is found all throughout our body and makes up almost all pathologic biominerals. So that's the plaque on your teeth, the plaque in your heart that forms right before you have a heart attack, the plaque in the arthritic joints, and all sorts of things like that. So we're seeing these minerals all throughout our body, and for the most part, they're fairly similar. When they form in the kidney, they can break through the surface of the kidney, and just like when uh, children make rock candy, they put the string in the sugar water, as soon as that calcium phosphate touches the urine, it blooms into a kidney stone, and that typically is made of calcium oxalate. You mentioned Randall's plaque, mm -hmm. and you talked about the plaque in, in your teeth. Mm -hmm. I brush my teeth, you know, twice a day mm -hmm. to reduce this, but I can't do anything to reduce the buildup in my kidneys, can I? We don't really understand why this Randall plaque is forming, and we find it in many people who don't make kidney stones. But one thing that we do see is kidney stones attached to it, so we think it's very important. Once the stones form, however, there's not much that can be done except to remove them surgically or to pass them on your own. To prevent the formation of the stones in the first place, we have to really focus on diet, exercise, and in some cases, medication. So what are, let's, let's talk more in depth about how to prevent kidney stones. Sure. Um, diet. Um, I've heard, you know, lots of fluids is, mm -hmm. is good. Water, mm -hmm. um, uh, cranberry juice. Thing. Is there one fluid that's better than another? So what I typically recommend is the volume of fluid is the most important thing. So rather than making drastic changes to what you're drinking, the, if you can do one thing is to drink lots of fluid. So uh, 
Typical recommendations are for 1.5 to 2.5 liters of urine production per day. So in order to meet that, a person needs to drink much more than that, so two to three liters of water per day because we sweat and have other ways in which we lose water. So it can be difficult, and um, especially when taking into consideration that we recommend a low-salt diet, patients very often aren't thirsty. So it's a real challenge to increase uh, fluid intake with kidney stones. You have to think about it and make sure that you're... Yeah, it has to be a conscious effort for most people. Now, are there any signs, like how would a person know that they're prone to develop kidney stones? So sometimes a family history is important, but for most people, it comes out of nowhere. Often they'll report that it was two in the morning, they were asleep, and they woke up suddenly. Perhaps they rolled over and the kidney stone fell into place uh, and just so obstructed their kidney and caused that severe pain. Are there certain people that are more um, prone? You, you said family history sometimes matters, but other than that, are men or women more prone? Yeah, historically men have been more at risk, and we sort of attributed that to dietary risk factors and maybe hormonal influences, but more and more we're seeing women affected by kidney stones. And this has matched pretty closely the rise in obesity and diabetes and uh, what we consider to be the Western diet high in salt and protein. All right. Uh, at certain ages? Uh, typically, um, if a child is forming kidney stones, it's more likely to be a genetic or familial kind of kidney stones. We mostly see kidney stones in the fifth and sixth decades. Well, we talked about things to uh, fluids to eat or ingest um, to reduce your risk. Are there things to avoid eating that would reduce your risk? Sometimes if the kidney stones contain oxalate, meaning that they're calcium oxalate stones, we recommend um, consuming a normal amount of calcium in your diet, so don't avoid calcium. And when you do eat foods that are rich in oxalates, like teas, chocolates, and nuts, to have a little bit of calcium with those foods to bind that oxalate in your intestines instead of in your kidneys. So calcium, when you say calcium, I think of milk, That's, but there's yep. other things that have calcium. Sure. Um, so milk products, uh, supplements like Tums or other over-the-counter calcium supplements are fine to have. We want about 1,200 milligrams a day. So even though the kidney stones are made up of calciums, is it the same calcium that's in milk? Yes, it is the same calcium. The main thing to recognize is that it's better to have those minerals form in your, in your intestines, in your stomach, than in your kidneys. So uh -huh. if we eat the calcium, we prevent our body from having abnormalities in calcium metabolism, and that prevents loss of calcium in the urine. Additionally, it binds that oxalate in the intestines. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Scott Weiner, an assistant professor of urology who directs the department's kidney stone program. Now, from what I've heard, kidney stones can be extremely painful. And you mentioned they may wake someone up from a sound sleep in the middle of the night. Um, is that pain a signal that it's an emergency and you need to get to the hospital? Yes, I think whenever someone has severe unexplained abdominal or flank pain, it's important to seek medical care. Um, one thing to consider is that uh, just having a stone that's passing doesn't mean you need a procedure. So when you come to the emergency room and if they diagnose you with a kidney stone, if possible, they would want you to try to pass that stone on your own. If it's small enough and if there are no other signs of infection or kidney damage or any other problems, then they may send you home with uh, appropriate pain medications and see if the stone will pass. Perhaps they would ask you to strain your urine, and if that doesn't work, then there are a variety of surgical procedures that we can use to help you out. Now, how do they find out for sure that you've got a kidney stone? If you come in with this pain, it, I mean, it could be something else, right? Yes. So historically, we've been doing uh, CAT scans, which is a scan that uses a lot of x-rays to diagnose the kidney stone, and increasingly concerns about radiation exposure have shifted us towards ultrasound in the emergency mm. room setting. So ultrasound doesn't show us much about the stone. It doesn't often tell us how big the stone is or exactly where it is. So what we can see is a blockage of the kidney. So if someone comes in with a blockage of the kidney and they're otherwise healthy, uh, the suspicion would be for a kidney stone. Depending on a variety of factors. The urologist may get a CAT scan afterwards, but um, don't be surprised if an ultrasound is the only thing that's used to diagnose the stone. 
So how do you determine whether the person can go home and pass the stone on their own or, or not? So typically the stones are less likely to pass based on the size of the stone. So about five millimeters, about the size of a pea, is sort of the cutoff between the 50% chance of passing a stone. So less than that, more likely than not to pass the stone. Over five millimeters, less likely to pass the stone. Once we get to about a centimeter, it's very unlikely to pass the stone. That's about the size of a dime. Wow, okay. So a few weeks back, Gene Simmons from KISS was said to have had a stent placed to help him expel a kidney stone that he had. Um, I'd never heard of the stents in in the kit. Tell me about how that's done. So a stent is a small plastic tube. It has a coil on both ends, uh, and it's about 10 inches long. And what this does is it bypasses the stone. It goes from the bladder to the kidney. You don't see it. It's inside the body, and it's placed using a camera, so there's no cuts or incisions to place it. We typically place a stent for patients with a stone under a few sick, few situations, like pain that's too severe to tolerate uh, pain medicine at home with nausea and vomiting and you just can't keep anything down. If there's injury to the kidney as a result of the stone, like a rise in your creatinine, or if there's any sign or symptom of an infection like a fever. Okay. Well, um, let's talk about the people who might need some sort of an intervention, Um, if not a stent, maybe something else. What can you tell me about the surgical options that there are? So there are three main types of surgery that we offer for kidney stones that are the most common procedures performed. So first of all, there's shockwave lithotripsy, which is a form of uh, sound waves that are delivered to the kidney at very high intensity while the person is sedated. These machines are brought in Uh, to the person's side near the kidney stone, and the sound waves are focused on the stone. This is then used to break up the stone, but really the limitation is that the patient has to pass those fragments on their own after the procedure. Most people do this just fine, but being less invasive, it's also a little bit less likely to clear the person of all of the stones that they might have. So they'll still have to deal with passing They will have to pass those stone fragments, yeah. Um, you said they're sedated, so they don't really feel what is happening. The person wouldn't feel the procedure, but um, it's because it's uh, minimally invasive, the person may, you know, may be able to um, recover a little bit quicker than some of the other procedures and go home, and that's really the main advantage to the procedure. Okay. Another option is what we call ureteroscopy. That's when we take a small telescope. It's a, about uh, the size of a very thick spaghetti noodle, And we take that and we can go up through the urethra into the kidney without any cuts or incisions or anything like that. And we find the stone using the camera and we can actually use a laser or other small tools to break up the stone and remove all of the pieces. And that's nice because we can see that we've removed the pieces and we can guarantee that uh, there's no more stones. That is a little bit more invasive, but a little bit more effective than the shockwave therapy. And the patient is uh, under the patient anesthesia would be asleep, for that? Yep. Okay. All right. Yep. Um, typically, the patient would end up with one of those stents we discussed earlier, which can be a little bit uncomfortable. So some people would prefer a shockwave over the ureteroscopy for that reason. Um, does the stent get removed later? Yeah, we typically stay? take it out about a week later, but depending on the situation, the number of days the stent stays in changes. And so you've got to live with it in there for that long. Exactly. And it's, yeah. Okay. Now, with both of those that you've mentioned, does, do they require a hospital stay? No, both of those are uh, same-day procedures, so there's no overnight stay unless there's some sort of problem. But uh, those problems are rare, and I'd say more than 95% of people go home the same day. Okay. And you yep. mentioned there's a third uh, yes, procedure? Yes, the third option is for larger stones. It's a little bit more invasive. It typically requires uh, one night in the hospital. That's called a percutaneous, meaning through the skin, nephrolithotomy, meaning removal of stone. So essentially, we take a needle and we introduce it into the kidney through the back. And um, at this point, we can uh, put a larger telescope in a small incision in the back. That incision is about the size uh, of a dime. uh, And the tools we use are a little bit larger than a pencil. So you go directly into the kidney? We go directly into the kidney. From there, we can use special tools to break up the stone and suck out the pieces. Um, Typically, we would do this procedure on stones that are Uh, two centimeters or or larger. Okay, so they have to be pretty big. They have to be pretty big, um, but in some circumstances, smaller stones are appropriate for this procedure as well, especially if the person wants to be sure that all of the pieces are gone. 
So the kidney's a solid organ, mm-hmm. and it's pretty good size. How do you know where to go in the kidney? That's a very good question. So uh, typically, uh, in upstate New York, uh, for many years now, a person has had to undergo several procedures in order to actually have the stone removed in this fashion. First, the person would go to sleep, and a urologist would place a catheter in the kidney from below. Then a radiologist would introduce the needle into the kidney and uh, perform what we call renal access. This would allow the urologist to then place the special tools into the kidney and remove the stone later that day. So it actually is three separate procedures, which is a lot. Um, Fortunately now, I've brought a technique called ultrasound-guided percutaneous renal access to upstate New York, and upstate is the only institution in upstate that's doing this particular procedure. So my patients come into the operating room once, they go to sleep, I'm able to find the kidney with an ultrasound, introduce that needle, and then introduce my surgical tools all in one setting. Is the uh, ultrasound live, so you're working while you're watching exactly. the ultrasound? Exactly. Uh, I'm able okay. to see the kidney and diagnose where the stones are in the kidney and any abnormalities to the kidney that I might see on that ultrasound. So you can see whether you got the stone you came after. Exactly. Right we can then. see real-time what's going on. Neat. And the, does that require a patient to stay in the hospital afterward? Uh, typically, my patients would spend one night in the hospital, although um, more and more we may be moving towards same-day discharge. Wow. Well, this has been very interesting. Thank you to Dr. Scott Weiner, Assistant Professor and Director of the Kidney Stone Program in Urology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Learn about limb preservation for people with arterial diseases next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Non-healing wounds of the foot or leg can mean that a person will face amputation. A vascular surgeon at Upstate is here in the HealthLink on Air studio to talk about limb preservation. Welcome to Dr. Palma Shaw. Thank you for being here. Now, Dr. Shaw, when we talk about non-healing wounds of the foot or leg, um, the wounds are not healing because of a circulatory issue. It's, they're not getting enough blood flow. Is that the situation? That often may be the case. When we see the patients, we try to assess what the etiology or cause of the wound is. It may be that the patient has underlying medical problems that are affecting their ability to heal the wound. It could be that the patient has what's called neuropathy, where they don't really feel pressure on the foot and have developed a pressure ulcer there. And although they have good arterial blood supply, they can't heal because they're always having causing pressure on that particular location. Because they can't really feel. They don't feel it. They have a numbness oftentimes. And that may be related to diabetes, but it may not be. Also, some patients have venous insufficiency where the blood arrives to the lower extremity or the foot, but it isn't returned well because the valves are damaged in the veins. And 10 million Americans have venous problems, so it's very common. And sometimes they have venous problems, and they also have arterial blockages. And having both of those together will increase their chance of problems healing the wounds and also increase their chance of limb loss or losing their leg. So we have to look at these patients, and many times it's not just one problem. The patients have to be assessed, and we have to determine whether or not they have adequate blood supply to the foot. The blood comes from the heart down to the toes. And then once it gets there, is the blood being returned well? And if not, are they swollen, and is that swelling limiting the oxygen delivery or arrival to the tissues that would you would need to heal? And then we have to try to determine why this happened. Was it a a poorly fitting shoe? Um, uh, Did they have an injury or bang their foot? Uh, What caused this to start? And even dry skin with a crack in the heel in a patient who may or may not have diabetes, that can set this patient up for a major problem if they have blockages in the arteries that they're not even aware of. Something as simple as dry skin, it seems like everyone might have an issue with that to some degree, but something like that can lead to a major medical issue? 
Absolutely. These patients, particularly diabetics who have something called neuropathy, they tend to develop heavy calluses on the bony prominences of their feet. That may be the heel, it may be the sides of the foot or the toes, depending upon how their foot is in the shoe. And when that happens, they just get a crack and they may not even notice until it gets infected. Uh, Many times these patients are referred to a vascular surgeon late because the people have not appreciated the lack of blood supply. They never knew they had a problem. Some of these patients are also smokers. Many times the smokers are even more at risk. In fact, the highest chance of losing your leg is in a diabetic who smokes. So why is, you've mentioned diabetes a lot, why is this such an issue? What is it about diabetes that sets a person up for this sort of problem? The diabetics have problems with regulation of their glucose control. The sugars may run high. When the sugars run high on a consistent basis, on a daily basis, and they're not well controlled, they have trouble with the uh, wound healing, and they also have problems with their white blood cells, which are in the blood, and those are very important not only for fighting infection, but they're also very important for wound healing. They bring nutrition and they bring special things, enzymes, to the wound that help repair it. It's like fixing a broken sink and you don't have a wrench. If you have a, a, or a broken wrench, so you know you can't fix it without it working properly. So when the sugars are always running high, a lot of the things in the body that would not happen in a, a non-diabetic are going to happen in a diabetic. So there'll be an increased risk of infection. They're going to have trouble healing. They oftentimes will have nerve and nerve problems related to neuropathy, they call it, and that will cause them to not appreciate whether they have too much pressure or whether if the leg is swollen, the foot is swollen, but their regular shoe usually fits, but they're more swollen in that on that day. Now they develop a blister or a wound and they don't even know it because they can't feel it to take off the shoe and put a Band-Aid on it or have it checked. And sometimes these patients with diabetes have eye problems called retinopathy, and they can't even see the problem. They don't see well. So now they can't feel it, they can't see it, and sometimes they don't even notice it until the, it's, until the wound is infected. And then if they're a smoker also, doesn't smoking make the vessels um, constrict and get more narrow? So what so- happens in diabetics is that they tend to get blockages of the arteries below the knee. And in a smoker, they tend to get blockages in the arteries in the, in the abdomen or the, you know, the, below the stomach area and in the upper legs. So if you have diabetes plus you're a smoker, it's a double whammy. They're getting disease at multiple layers of their, of their body. And having this what we call multi-level disease above the knee, below the knee, significantly increases their chance of losing their leg because now... We have to sew as surgeons or balloon or treat tiny vessels in the calf, which are no more than three millimeters in size. Wow. Also, those patients um, who are diabetic, they don't compensate well for these blockages. So a person who's just a smoker who gets cramping when they walk because of blockages in their legs, um, they may notice now that they have a problem. But the diabetics don't always get that warning sign, so they don't have the opportunity to have their body repair this problem on its own. This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Palma Shaw. She's a vascular surgeon at Upstate, but she's also got expertise in wound care. And so what I wanted to ask you, with these non-healing wounds, if something develops, what are some therapies that could be attempted to sort of treat that before you face the prospect of, of amputation? What are some things you try first? First, when we see the patient, we do a full physical examination, and we want to look at the wound and first try to figure out why this happened so we can remove the, the source of that problem, whether it's a bad shoe or something like that. Um, then we have to make sure it's not infected. If it's infected, then we may have some dead skin there that needs to be removed, and that's called debridement. And we put numbing medicine on the patient and we clean that up because you don't want dead tissue there. And then we may start antibiotics to treat that infection. Also, then we look at the patient and we check their blood supply. Sometimes it's obvious by listening, by 
feeling their foot or on the foot that there's a good pulse. But if not, we use something called a Doppler. And that helps us listen to the blood supply. If we know that that's not normal, we will also obtain a study where we put a blood pressure cuff on the calf and in diabetics even on the toe to measure the blood flow to the toe. And if it's limited, then a vascular surgeon or vascular specialist really needs to see the patient to decide what we can do next. What we do next if this patient does have limited blood supply is we might recommend an angiogram or a dye study or a CAT scan with, in, with dye to try to see where the blockages are. And if so, then oftentimes we can treat this with a balloon or a stent, or sometimes we tell the patient that they really need a surgical bypass, sort of a bridge from A to B around the blockages. It might be from above the knee to the foot. I've heard um, heart surgeons talk about similar things, the stents and, and bypasses. You're doing the same thing, we just do in a different part of the in body. In a different location, yes. Okay. Um, what about regenerative medicine? Is that something that is used for non-healing wounds? Once we've done standard wound care and we've assessed that there's no infection now, we've cleaned the wound, we know we have enough blood supply, and we've alleviated any cause, you know, uh, the problem that caused the, the wound in the first place, um, then we treat the wound for at least four weeks with standard wound care therapy. When the wound appears to be stalled out, almost like a car stalling, you need to jumpstart it. So the way to jumpstart it, aside from debriding it, cleaning off any dead cells that might be lining the wound, is to use other methods um, called advanced wound care therapies. Advanced wound care therapies may include something like hyperbaric oxygen therapy, where you put the patient in a chamber, almost like a diving chamber, and we have that here at Upstate. We use it for inpatient emergencies and also outpatient, and that can increase the oxygen concentration in the blood and help deliver more blood to the wound. That still does not replace good blood supply. Good blood supply is always most important, um, but it definitely can help in some patients, uh, particularly diabetics. Um, then we also have other therapies where we can use uh, um, artificial types of skin um, and cells, um, neonatal foreskin, the foreskin from the baby we can, has been taken and expanded and grown out in certain uh, uh, industries, and they're able to give us pieces of that in a Petri dish, and we put it on the wound, and it will jumpstart the wound. And there's several other different uh, widely available therapies that we use. Those are considered advanced and do have, we use it all here and in our wound care center, and they have good results. Tell me a, a little bit more about the limb preservation team here at Upstate. So the most important thing to know is that not one person can do all of these things. These patients need to be approached in a multidisciplinary effort. That means that we need the primary care doctor involved. We need a vascular specialist to assess the patient. This may, that vascular specialist may or may not be the wound care specialist, and if not, then you need a wound care specialist to manage the wound and assess that. If there's any infection or bone involvement, you need to have infectious disease involved. Oftentimes, you need a nutritionist to do a nutritional assessment and make sure that the patient has enough protein and, and is not malnourished or, or needs special diets to improve their wound healing. Additionally, having a social worker involved that might be able to provide some support to the patient, they may need help at home. Oftentimes, they need visiting nursing. But they need emotional support. This is very stressful for the patient. If they're diabetic, they may need to see a diabetologist. We often refer patients to our Jocelyn uh, Diabetic Center here, which has uh, a nationally renowned expertise in diabetic uh, management. So we And we also include podiatry or orthopedic foot specialists, as well as, uh, as, well as specialists just to create the shoes, special shoes for diabetics or, or special types of boots to keep weight off the foot while the wound may heal. So it's a large group of people that are required that need to coordinate care, communicate well to provide the optimal care to the patients. And there is data in the literature showing that this type of limb preservation program can not only save limbs and provide good quality care to the patients, we can save money in health care by doing so. I'm assuming that the sooner a patient brings forward the fact that they've got a non-healing wound, maybe the better chance for a good outcome. 
how would you advise a person? How do you know when something is not healing the way it should? How long do you give a wound to, to get better? Usually if the wound isn't healing over a week or two, I think the patient may want to talk to their primary care. Definitely, if the wound is not healed in four weeks, they definitely need to be seen by a specialist. And these are wounds on arms and legs, feet? Most of the patients that we tend to see are in the lower extremities. Occasionally, there are patients with some diseases where we see wounds of the fingers, um, but the large majority is on the lower leg and foot. So if you get a cut or a, a bruise or a bump or something that's just not getting better over a week or more, it's something really to bring to the attention of your primary care provider. Yes, the primary care provider is really the front line. They coordinate all the care. They know their patients the best, and they also are aware of all of the patients' underlying medical problems that, and medications. Many of these patients, for example, if they're on steroids for any reason, it can slow down wound healing. If their diabetes is not well controlled, this will slow down their wound healing. Um, if they're on any other form of immunosuppression, if they're getting treated for cancer, they, this would slow down their wound healing. So the primary care doctor is always the best person to start with, and they know the patient the best. But what we need to do is, as, as specialists in limb preservation is we need to educate the patients so they know what to look for. That's what we're trying to do today here. We need to educate the doctors, the primary care doctors, and, and the nurses, and the physical therapists, and all of the other patients that just might happen to encounter this patient during their day-to-day Life, For example, the patient may go to a physical therapist for management of their arthritic problems to try to get around better, and the physical therapist may notice that there's a wound. They may actually be the first person to say to the patient, I think you need to get this checked out. So a lot of this is education, communication, and good collaboration. Well, this is an important issue, and I appreciate you coming in to talk about this. My guest has been Upstate Vascular Surgeon, Dr. Palma Shaw. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Stay tuned to HealthLink on Air for a look at the Community Trauma Response Team. Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Gang-related violence has been a continual problem in impoverished inner-city neighborhoods throughout the United States. In Syracuse in 2010, a community trauma response team was established. Here in the HealthLink on Air studio to talk about the role of this team and its success is one of the founders, Timothy Jennings Bay. Welcome to HealthLink on Air. Thank you. So let's talk about how the community trauma response team came to be. A number of years ago, myself, former chief of police, Frank Fowler, and the president of the Common Council and co-founders of Mothers Against Gun Violence, Helen Hudson, uh, we were noticing in the community when we were responding to crime scenes, uh, which was on a volunteer basis for us, that the victims as well as the perpetrators of the crime, they were getting younger and younger. Um, I remember one night in particular, there were about seven shootings and one night. And uh, at this particular shooting on the south side of the city, there was a she had to be about between 12 and 14 uh, years old, a little girl. And she was uh, crying on the sidewalk hysterically. Obviously, you could tell she had a relationship with one of the individuals that was shot. Uh, We left that crime scene and made our rounds throughout the city to other crime scenes. And when we got back. The same little girl was still sitting on the sidewalk crying. Um, People were walking around her or just stepping over her like it was business as usual. Um, So the very next day, uh, myself, former chief of police, uh, Frank Fowler and Helen Hudson, um, president of the Common Council here in the city, we sat down and came up with the uh, program called the Trauma Response Team. We wanted to address the victims outside of the yellow tape because there are thousands of victims outside of the yellow tape. Uh, I I call trauma the invisible demon. Um, That's something you can't see. You don't know what people carry. You don't know what they deal with on a day-to-day basis. So we wanted to put a process in place to kind of, you know, address that as much as we could. 
And so children or um, preteens are part of that, but not not necessarily the limit to that. No, adults and everybody's traumatized. Uh, if you live under uh, that canopy or there are particular zip codes in our city, 13204, 13205, where uh, there are gunshots day in and day out, uh, just to hear a gunshot is traumatizing, uh, let alone if you're unfortunate uh, to be hit by gunfire or if you're murdered, uh, because that changes the dynamic of the family overnight. Are you aware of other communities in the United States that have something similar, a, a community trauma response team like this? Well, we looked around. I don't think it's on this level. And I've, I've got calls from Seattle, Washington, everywhere. They wanted to know how were we able to maintain mm -hmm. this program over that long period of time. Um, there were a lot of hands in the pot, so to speak. Our former uh, mayor, Stephanie Miner, our current mayor uh, and deputy mayor, uh, Ben Walsh and uh, Sharon Owens uh, here at Upstate, Mark Budaleri, Social Work Department, uh, Syracuse University, which you see the article under the direction of Dean Murphy at the School of Falk. So there's a collaboration that doesn't get enough attention here in our city and in our county um, that speaks to this issue, everybody having faith in my ability to articulate uh, the issue. So we're really above board here in Syracuse. There's a lot of good people at the table that uh, really have a vested interest in our families and our children um, dealing with this issue of trauma. Maybe the actual, the collaborative nature is what keeps it strong because you're nine, almost 10 years into yeah, this definitely. and it's still very well operating. And yep, Definitely. So there was a paper published in the Journal of Urban Health in 2015 about this program, and it said there was a significant reduction in gang-related gunshots and murders after the trauma response team was created. Is mm -hmm. that still the case? Yeah, that's still the case with a lot of our other partners. Um, the SNUG program, which is directed by uh, Randy White. Uh, like I said, there's a, a great collaboration uh, in place. So that's still, you know, the fact a lot of times those statistics or numbers aren't shown because if I have a off the grid conversation with an individual, um, you know, that's operating from the standpoint of pride and ego and they want to hurt another individual, that's not something I could put on Channel 10 on the news or right, right. talk about it on the radio because some things are off the grid. So a lot of our work is off the grid. And that's one thing um, we've been, you know, taking a bull by the horns to see how we can actually uh, present this data without people being offended or exposing certain elements uh, in the community that people just, you know, want to keep to themselves when it comes to the neighborhood conflict. So how do you tie the drop to the existence of the team, though? Because these two things can be happening, but how do you make the connection that it's the team's presence that's having the impact? Is that pretty much everyone agrees that that's what it is? Or Well, you could you could see if you look over, you know, a five or 10 year period, there are other processes in place that hasn't changed those numbers. Uh. Right. So when we infuse our consciousness and we put boots on the ground uh, with our team, then you could kind of see things start to shift. The paradigm moves a little bit. Um, so, you know, that's how we look at things and how we measure it, right? Our presence and, you know, our relationship with the community and the families and the young people. And, you know, we just take full advantage of that. Um, it's a lot of hard work, you know. One of the things I pulled from this paper was that um, gang members were, um, they perpetrated 78% of the city's homicides. Um, right. Most of which were vengeance for a previous murder. Is that still, percentage still that high? No, nah, the percentages went down. And right. what they found out about Syracuse, New York, the uh, neighborhood conflict situation here is not like bigger cities like a Chicago or a Philadelphia. Here, it's it's very difficult to get a handle on because it's what they call interpersonal violence. So it's kind of like the Hatfields and the McCoys. Like, if you shoot somebody I love, then we come back, we try to shoot or kill somebody you love, and then it just goes back and forth. Right. There's really no rhyme and reason to it. When you think of gang, you think of some type of structure. Right. More organized, right, more organized. But here is more neighborhood conflict and more interpersonal. 
Well, even so, there's some gang members from the largest gangs in this area have been prosecuted and put in prison. And I wonder if their absence from the streets has made a difference, if you see if that's an impact or, or not. Not really. It's kind of an ebb and flow. Um, you know, as they say, if you remove something, nature will fill that void. So unfortunately, you have young people growing up in poverty and the overexposure to the trauma. Um, and sometimes as children, their brains are not fully developed, so they make those mistakes. Um, they start running with a peer group, making the wrong decisions, and they find themselves in you know bad situations. Let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Timothy Jennings Bay about the Community Trauma Response Team in Syracuse. I want to ask you to talk about what it's like for someone who's not a gang member, but who lives in one of these census tracts where violence and gang activity is high. Um, what, what can parents do to keep their kids safe in that community? Well, I always ask the question because people outside of the community, um, the only way you could connect with people on any level, especially under the canopy of trauma, you have to display some type of empathy. So I always ask people, how would you parent in a war zone? Because it's a war zone. Right. How would you parent? How would you go about parenting your son or your daughter? Well, you think of a war zone and you think of, you know, keeping them sheltered. They don't go outside. You don't let them be near a window. You don't, I mean, you live in a prison of your own home, right? Right. So people start to move uh, based off of fear. They did an interesting uh, study. Um, uh, a friend of ours and a colleague, he works downstate, um, uh, well, throughout the state, but he's from Yonkers. He's uh, one of the directors for the SNUG program. And they uh, did an experiment with some mice, but they left the mice to their own devices. But in the midst of the in the midst of this experiment, they took one cat hair and dropped it in the middle of the mice. And they all started to break out and go to their respective corners and wouldn't move. They were almost stifled by fear. So that's kind of the same thing we see in the community. That one gunshot is like that cat hair, right? And it moves people to their respective corners. And sometimes people don't want to cross boundaries because we've lost so much. There are so many children um, that's been buried um, in this dynamic since we started keeping the numbers with Mothers Against Gun Violence since 1996. It's over 400 and some odd people murdered, right? That's not natural, right? Right here in Syracuse. Right here in Syracuse. And you have children who grow up, they're part of these families, they're part of this community, they're exposed to this, and then we expect them to go to school and sit down and get good grades. So we're, we're... we're asking the impossible of these young people and their families. What does it do to a person when it's continual violence that they witness or that they hear? Um, And you mentioned like trying to go to school and study. Is that even possible? You become numb, right? You really become numb to things around you. Uh, It's hard for you to feel, uh, right? You start to calculate in your mind that I could be next. So now you have you know, suicidal, homicidal ideation. You start looking at your friends and your peer group wondering who's going to be next. So it's almost like being on a roller coaster. You know, when you go up a roller coaster and right when you reach the pinnacle of it and it drops, imagine living with that feeling in your stomach every day. That angst that's just there. Yeah, every day. Wow. Well, it might be simplistic to say, well, they should just move. That's not a solution. Right. People can't just move out of this right. environment. Right. And, and as they say, no matter where you go, there you are. Yeah. Right. So just to move where. Right. And, and you have to remember, a lot of these people uh, live under the canopy of poverty. Um, so to move that, that sounds logical, but not possible. Yeah, that's a hurdle. That's a major hurdle. So this community trauma response team, can you walk me through when there is a violence or a shooting in the community, what does the response team, how are you activated? What do you do? What is your role? Well, my phone is hooked to the 911 center um, along with other team members. So the call will come out. It will give the location, the description of the individual, and the nature of the injuries. 
Um, it slowed down a little, but in the past, uh, we would go directly to the crime scene and we would act as a liaison between the police department and the community. Because when we created it, I understand that's a stress relationship historically. So to act as a liaison between the families and the police department, I felt that was important because somebody shot and experiencing that type of trauma, the last thing you want is more confusion. So that's what we call the first level of response. The second level, we come here to upstate um, and respond at the emergency room. Because that's the trauma center. Because that's the trauma center, right? So um, try to keep the ambulance bay clear because ambulance still have to come in and out. You have people who may be getting out of their personal vehicles or Uber or a cab with sick children, or they may be sick and run into a dynamic that they know nothing about, right? So we try to act as a liaison between the hospital staff and the community as well to get families in, right, in a, a timely and, you know, a manner uh, where they still feel whole and respected. And then the third level, we have the follow-up process with Mothers Against Gun Violence where they, you know, they check on families and family members to make sure uh, they're exposed to the necessary resources that they need after they experience uh, a trauma or a tragedy. And then we do preventive things like we'll go on the corner and fry turkeys and hand out apple cider, lemonade, hot dogs, hamburgers, just to keep those lines of communication open. Because the last thing I didn't want to do was have people in the community feel like uh, we're just showing up when something happens. And that's not the case. We're always visible and present. When something does happen, and, and this paper talked about the vengeance killings, you know, someone gets killed. Do you immediately think about, okay, what's the retaliation going to be? What can we do to intervene and prevent it? Naturally. That's where our SNUG program in the city of Syracuse, uh, they come into play. They manage the conflict or those conflicts. So they infuse themselves into that process, go to both sides of the aisle, and to see if we can you know, come up with some peaceful measures so another mother doesn't have to feel that pain mm-hmm. of, of other mothers in our community. What can you tell me about the Street Addiction Institute? Street Addiction Institute. This is where I think um, people, even here in the city of Syracuse or across our country, downplay the genius that we have here uh, in the city of Syracuse. So street addiction is a theory that I created that highlights the fact that the streets have an addictive nature, just like cocaine, alcohol, or gambling, and people who are reared in that process are in need of respite and rehabilitation before you can um, mainstream them back into any quote-unquote traditional educational setting, job setting, or career path. Uh, That theory doesn't exist anywhere else in the world, Um, and it came right here from Syracuse, and I'm from those same zip codes that these young people are from that same trauma, right? Um, Which I turned that trauma into triumph, right? I looked at it, um, you know, and and I said something good has to come out of this eventually. So I don't take the work light. All of my friends, even the young people uh, who lose their lives recently, um, I I see this as a ministry. I, I try to speak for those who aren't able to speak anymore. And so I I take the work very seriously because it's my ministry. I feel like that's what I was born to do. I feel like that's why I survived uh, to be able to articulate this side of the aisle. Well, it's important work. Thank you to uh, Timothy Jennings Bay, one of the founders of the Community Trauma Response Team in Syracuse. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Joyce Holmes McAllister has published two books of poetry. The first was Before We Knew, the second was Return, and what is amazing is Joyce did this in her 80s. She sent us for this new issue two new poems that are searing and emotional and not sentimental. The first poem is called Yesterday. Yesterday can burn, melt you down, turn flesh to ash, even after memory dims, tries to hide inside long years you once took in, touched, loved. 
you thought you had forgotten. Then someone asks. The question sparks a raging fire, brings the sear of reignited time, turns blackest darkness into scorching sun, makes the past rise up, demand to live again inside that buried yesterday. Then you know how long dead fire can blaze, break your heart again. The second poem is a sonnet entitled, You May Not Know. You may not know, but I have left you now. Failed vision seeks the truth, and so I dare to look more closely, change my heart somehow, not mourn the loss of something never there. I leave without a word that you can hear, thus keep our parting gay, low-key, and fair, that you may feel a difference yet unclear. Then sense my change and wonder, is it there? In youth, I would have mourned at length your loss and blamed myself for wrongs, if sparse or true. I now know both of us will pay a cost, but seasoned hearts can mend and start anew. With sense and age, we let lost passions cool, no longer stay to play love's endless fool. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, strategies for coping with a long, dark pandemic winter. If you missed any of today's show or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Listening.